Intersection is brought to you by Social Health Institute, exploring new and innovative ways for hospitals and healthcare organizations to develop and enhance their social media and digital marketing strategies. Learn more at socialhealthinstitute.com. Yeah, I really think it's important when I cover border stories to keep in the back of my mind that these people that are coming across, for the most part, they're human beings. Welcome to Intersection. I am Bobby Ratu, storyteller. So what's your passion? My passion is investigative reporting and journalism. And what I look for are stories where there is an assumption of what the reality is, but the reality is different from that assumption. So if I can turn a story that shows that what people assume is incorrect, that's, that's what I look for. And, and that's a big goal and a passion of mine. Introduce yourself. My name is Morgan Lowe, and I'm an investigative reporter in Arizona. I work for the CBS TV station here, and I have been a journalist in TV for 28 years. In 1998, I found myself in a new job, new city, new state, and really a whole new side of the country. This southern born and bred young adult from South Carolina found himself in Phoenix, Arizona, working for, at the time, the flagship television station for Meredith Corporation. KPHO TV5 is where I met Morgan Lowe. Phoenix is the fifth most populous city nationwide, the most populous state capital in the United States, and the only state capital with a population of more than one million residents. The history of the city of Phoenix begins with Jack Swilling, a Confederate veteran of the Civil War. In 1867, while traveling through the Salt River Valley, he saw a potential for farming. Cotton, cattle, citrus, climate, and copper were known locally as the five C's of Phoenix economy. Now, it is a high-tech epicenter a few hundred miles north of the U.S.-Mexican border. Morgan Lowe grew up on the border and gave me my first experience with border towns, immigration, and migration. Now, his storytelling and reporting has created an epicenter of debate, discussion, and further contextualization of this international cultural war. We continue this journey as we examine the institution of the wall and beyond the borders. Let's go back to where we first met. I, I think it was the HR department at KPHO TV. D- is that true? I think that's what it was. My, I think we we're both hired on the same day or something like that. I think you got there about a month before I did. I oh, that's right, that's right. I my first memory of you is my first day of working there when I got sent out to cover a spot news story at noon on the first day. And you and I are driving, and, and we were in an old Jeep Cherokee, I think. You were driving maybe a little bit more than the speed limit. And uh, we were going to a Circle K where there had been a robbery. I think someone had stolen some beer. And someone might have been shot. I think that's why it was newsworthy. And we had to get there on deadline. And I just remember this southern kid driving fast and going, all right, what's the – what?" What's the the story we're doing here? We're gonna fi- we're fixing to do a live shot. <laughs> <laughs> and you're probably like, I have no idea what the story is either. Yeah, 
that first day didn't know how any of the equipment worked uh but have a great that's a great first memory of you bobby well i tell you what one of the first things that i remember was not necessarily our first day working but i do remember we were both it was like we were both in a new place at the same time even though you're you kind of came up from Tucson, which is two hours away, but still, we were both in a new job, a new place, uh, about the same time in our lives. And I remember you learning that you know I'm from two thousand miles away and didn't really have any friends there. Mm-hmm. And you called me up and like, hey man, I'll be what you doing this weekend? And I'm like, I don't know, I'm just kind of hanging out. He's like, you were like, I'll be there in about thirty minutes. Pack your bags. And I was like, all right. And you show up and you're uh, you're. Uh, your Land Rover, mm-hmm. and um, if it's okay, we talk about this a little bit. You know, you had a adult beverage mm-hmm. ready for me, mm-hmm. and we took off to the ranch. Yeah, and that weekend at the ranch was my first introduction to the lower part of Arizona, and really my first introduction to ranching life, border life, um, lower part of Tucson. Um, tell us a little bit about your family and where you grew up and, um, the Linda farm, just, just paint a picture of what the lower part of Tucson is all about in between Tucson and Nogales. Yeah. So we call it Southern Arizona here. Uh, and it is a, an area unto itself. Uh, I grew up in outside of a little town called Amato in between two little towns, two back in Amato. And we have what's left of the family ranch there, 63 acres. My family, my father in 1953 bought a a big ranch in Sasabe, Arizona, which is about 50 miles away. And that was 30 something thousand acres. And this other spot, there was a thousand acres where we had the feedlot, but there was a nice ranch house. Over the years, he sold the big ranch and sold everything down to 63. And that's, that's where I grew up on this 63 acres. We're about an hour south of Tucson, about 25 miles north of the border with Mexico. And it's a great intersection of sort of what you would consider Arizona ranching life. You know, the, the Caucasian, the Anglo ranchers and the, um, what used to be part of Mexico as well. And, and this, these, these ranches that are in the Santa Cruz Valley are part of what was called the Baca Float. And, and that was a huge, huge Mexican ranch a uh, hundred or so years ago that was sold off and divided up, and, and we have part of it. So you have a, a mixture of a bunch of cultures uh, there, and I think I was pretty lucky to grow up down there. Um, there were about half Hispanic in my grade school. My graduating class from junior high was 40. And um, so we all got to know each other really well. It was a great place to grow up. It was one of those places where you open the door in the morning and you run out into the hills with your dogs or your horses and you're back at night. And, um, and as I grew up, I sort of realized or got to know that there's also this big immigration issue going on here because we were right in the area where uh, immigrants from Mexico and South and Central America cross uh, to get into the United States. And, and so seeing groups of these people come through our place was a, you know, just a normal thing for me. So immigration has always been an issue uh, that we've grown up with down there. Um, and it's, uh, it's got good and bad and, and in, 
living down there also had good and bad, but I remember most of the good. Tell me a little bit about um, what is it like to grow up on the border with this type of influx of people, especially in the ranching life? You know, there's a lot of mixed emotions there. You know, many owners of land don't want people crossing their land, but many don't mind it. And and you and I have had long discussions about and even interviewed together different people with different perspectives. Talk a little bit about what are the, the realities of being and living with land on these border areas from your perspective. So I'll start with the easiest negative reality if you are a ranch owner. Um, or you have any kind of property along the border. And that is that um, smugglers constantly cut fences. And so your fence gets cut, your cattle gets out, or your neighbor's cattle gets in. And, and that is so probably the number one issue among ranchers is the fence cutting. So that's, that's the negative. Um, the, the other you know, part of it is you just kind of grow up with, you know, it's a reality that people are going to be migrating. And if you think about it, you know, since probably 1990, arguably there's been 10 to 15 million people come back and forth across that border. I'm not saying that we've got all these 15 million that stay here, but over that period of time, back and forth, and it is a, a largely peaceful migration. You know, these people want to come across and, and get jobs and they come through your property. Uh, when I was really young, you know, we would give them water, uh, make sandwiches maybe and tell them to watch out for the border patrol. They're on the highway, you know, stick with through the trees. Um, that was a pretty popular sentiment among ranchers and property owners is to just, you know, tell them to, to watch out and, and get through um, where to go to get through that changed in southern Arizona because of one incident. And, and, it, and if you could point to one thing that changed the mindset of a lot of the ranchers in southern Arizona toward illegal immigration, it was a, a double murder that took place in like 1982, I think was the year. An immigrant who was here illegally who had come across the border um, murdered two ranch hens at a ranch about 25 miles southeast of our place. And it, it got a lot of news. And all of a sudden, instead of, you know, giving sandwiches and, and water and telling uh, immigrants to watch out for the Border Patrol, all of a sudden people started calling the Border Patrol and saying, I, I see a group over here. Um and, and, and it was that murder. And and six weeks after that murder took place, the, the murderer uh, was captured um, by a, a Santa Cruz County Sheriff's deputy who had gone for six. He, he had tracked the footprints back to Mexico. That's why they, they knew it was somebody from Mexico. They tracked the footprints back. And the, the murderer had a unique footprint and a unique limp. So this deputy, Pete Alegria, I'll always remember this story. I went to school with his son. Um, every day at the end of his shift, he'd just kind of go across the border parallel to it, and he'd look through the washes and just see if he could spot this footprint in the other sort of mass of footprints. And six weeks later, he spots it heading back north. And so he tracked it and called in, and there were helicopters and, um, and a bunch of you know other law enforcement agents and I know this because 
they captured him about 300 yards from where I was standing at the south end of our ranch. And it was in, in the afternoon. I was there with my, my childhood friend. We were just doing what kids do in the afternoon on a ranch, hiking or riding our horses. I don't remember which. And my brother, Stuart, who's 14, pulls up in our pickup truck and says, get in. They're catching that guy. We all knew who that guy was. Uh, and we jumped in and, and took off and they captured this guy. So that was sort of the turning point in the way immigration was viewed in Southern Arizona to a, a large extent. You know, one of the things that I think you taught me as a naive South Carolinian <laughs> coming to a, a border town or a border state, so to speak, um, is a different culture. And, um, you know, I remember the first night that I spent the night at your family ranch and sitting in the den with those glass windows, you know, over where you look at the mountains and we would just sit there and talk about it. And it was just a big reality to me that just around the corner from those mountains was the border. And that is something I never thought about. What does a border mean, so to speak? You know, at that time in my life, the only time I'd ever been outside of the country was really on a cruise to the Bahamas. And so I didn't really have a context behind that. And um, I remember after that, you and I were taken, were sent to a murder story down on one of, in one of the Indian reservations near the border. I think it was outside Sells, Arizona. And I remember it was in the middle of summer. It's 125 degrees outside. I remember it was so hot. You couldn't touch the tripods. And this is the first time I got access to the reality that there is so much Indian reservation that very, with very limited jurisdiction on the U.S. side, and yet this Indian reservation could cross the border back and forth because it was their own property. Kind of talk about a little bit about the border of Arizona from your perspective. It's it, They're inside Nogales and these border towns. It's a big green wall type of thing. But then out in the outskirts, it's, you know, barbed wire fences that necessarily are either owned by the, the landowner or on Indian reservation. Describe it for me from your perspective. So in a border community, oftentimes the, the border itself is just incidental. You know, this wall that's that's been put up, fence or wall, whatever you want to call it, in most of these communities is pretty new. Um, there's always been a barrier, but uh, you know, in times past, it was a fence. It might have been a tall fence. It might have been a barbed wire fence. But these are generations of people that who grew up, and, and the border was just there. It was something that they crossed every day for commerce and for work. Um, and and to give you an example of how that works is is Nogales, Arizona has a sister city, Nogales, Sonora. Sasabe, Arizona has a sister city, Sasabe, Sonora. And the border just cuts through there and people have relatives on both sides and they have businesses on both sides and they just navigate this barrier to go on with their lives. And the, the border is really incidental. Now it's a little, you know, a little more of a hassle to get back and forth. And that's created some issues for the local economies. But another issue and the one that you were referring to is there is an Indian reservation in Arizona. And you know that Native Americans have been here long before we have, and the, the, the barriers or the boundaries of their land are, you know, existed before the boundaries of the United States existed. 
And, and so in southern Arizona, there is a, a reservation called the Tahana Otham Indian Reservation. And that reservation spans both sides of the border. And there are Tahana Othams that live in Mexico on the south end of this reservation and in the United States. And, and that has been a, a difficult situation for the U.S. government to deal with because these are citizens of that sovereign nation who are used to crossing back and forth. So this border wall issue, um, you know, there's no wall on the reservation. There's a barrier, but it is crossed every day because these indigenous people who have lived there cross back and forth to see their relatives. And, you know, the border really doesn't exist to them. So that's one extreme. Then you have the, the people in the towns um, who sort of cross to do commerce. And then, and then you have, um, you know, where the border really is an issue and, and really is real. And that is to laws and law enforcement and to keep out drug smugglers and that kind of thing. So growing up on the border, you have three different levels. The, the legal border, the border that's there for a reason to protect us from drug smugglers and the the bad element that's from outside the country. Then you have the border that is sort of there is just something you have to get around because of commerce or tourism or people from Nogales, Sonora want to shop in Nogales, Arizona because the grocery stores are better and the people in Nogales, Arizona want to go to Nogales, Sonora because they can get dental work done at a fraction of the price. There the border sort of incidental. It's just something I've got to cross to to get on with my daily legal life. And then you have the Indian reservation where the border to them doesn't exist. Uh, and they go back and forth and it's not even a barrier to them. So we've got three different worlds coexisting at the same time here. And it's a unique thing to observe and it's a unique thing to report on as a journalist. Why do you think your dad decided to buy property in this area. You basically, your dad picked an area that puts you in a spot to grow up in a very cultural epicenter of just so many different people. Why do you think your dad decided to do that? My dad moved to Tucson in 1920, no, 1934 when he was nine years old. He had a, I think he had bronchitis or some asthma and they thought the drier climate back here, he grew up in, in New York City. They thought the drier climate would be better for his lungs. As we've learned now, it's, it's not good out here for lungs because of the dust particles. But back then, a lot of people moved out west because they thought the drier climate would be better for, for um, lung issues. So my dad moved out here in 1934 and just fell in love with the desert. His mom and his sister were here. And he grew up in Tucson and then joined the Army Air Force for the end of World War II, was in Los Angeles, worked in the movie business, um, but always wanted to have a place in Arizona, to have a ranch. So I think when he was in his 30s, he bought a place, our place, and um, has always kept one foot in Arizona. And when he and my mom got married and decided to have kids, they lived in Los Angeles, um, they said, you know what, let's go to the ranch and live there and raise our kids there because it's outside of the city. And, you know, you've got this idea that growing up in the country is a better environment for kids. Uh, and I think it was back then. We lived in the city 
in Los Angeles for a couple of years um, when I was in second to like sixth grade. And I don't think it was as good of an environment as when we moved back here uh, because of, you know, Southern Arizona is a little bit of a melting pot. You have a lot of Hispanic influence um, and some Caucasian, you know, Anglo influence. And you, you know, you're just as likely to have your best friend have their parents in Mexico as you are having your best friend have their parents from Chicago. We bring in people from all over the country and all over the world here, Bobby, and you are one of them. Well, one of the things that I think is fascinating too, and uh, you know, and I, and I don't want to bring this in just just to do it, but I think it's fascinating is that there's Southern Arizona had kind of this cultural. You, you have you have the border related stuff. You have the ranching. You have all these pieces, but you know, with your family and kind of the the film and television industry a little bit. You know, there was a lot of productions that were done in Southern Arizona. I remember one time you shared like, yeah, just over that ridge, they shot Oklahoma in the grasslands. I mean, you know, there was a rich culture of um, of that those families that worked in that business were in that Southern Arizona as well. Is that correct? Yeah, the Western film genre really was good to Arizona from the – 30s, 40s, 50s, and, and 60s, and it, it sort of died out in the 70s. But you know, westerns were really popular, and it was tough to shoot a western in California because it's so populated there, and it was a little cheaper to shoot in Arizona. So we we benefited from our um, location being close to California and our scenery here. So there were generations of people who lived in Arizona and were able to make their living as wranglers or extras or, you know, regular working actors because of the Western genre. Uh, and as a result, a lot of these people, um, even the actors from California who were in the Westerns decided to retire in Arizona. So we have and had a, a, a big movie influence here that, um, probably became less prevalent as the Western, you know, Western films became less popular in the seventies and eighties. All of a sudden you had star Wars and science fiction and, and that became a little more popular. But um, as a result of the popularity, Arizona has a, a rich history in film and a lot of people here who made their living for generations, uh, families, generations in the film business. Now a quick break to ask you for your help. Did you know Intersection Podcast is part of a network of shows and we're looking for your feedback? We would appreciate your help if you could take a few minutes to fill out a short listener survey. Go to survey.intersectionpodcast.com. That is survey.intersectionpodcast.com. We hope you'll share your experience. Hi there, this is Bobby again. We need your help. If you like Intersection, we'd really appreciate you taking a moment to leave us a review. Whether you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, please take a moment to leave a review. This is important because it helps others find our show. Thank you so much for your help. And the reason why I bring that up is that when we start talking about border-related issues, right, 
you know, visiting McAllen and being across the Texas border in many places, it's very similar. You have a lot of ranches that border it. You have a lot of border towns. There is this notion that there's just a lot of poor people, right, that live on the border in ranchers. And where you grew up, and I think that's probably something that shaped you in the way that you approach a lot of the the reporting, is that there was a rich culture there as well outside of just the immigration and the and all the pieces that are going with that. There was a rich film industry there as well. And so a lot of converging ideas that are happening right there that kind of make this area of Southern Arizona just a rich, interesting population, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and you know, people consider Hollywood liberal. Um, whether that's true or not, it's probably a little more true. And and I think that that you know the the artsy, the Hollywood, the artsy sort of influence that that has been on the border here in Southern Arizona has helped to add other perspectives. I think a lot of people view, you know, ranchers generally conservative. Uh, so a lot of rural areas, uh, if you look at the electoral map and you look at voting, you know, habits, rural areas have, are very red. Um, but in Southern Arizona, they're blue. And I think some of that is the Hollywood influence. Um, these generations of people who have lived here and worked in the film business and some of it's artistic. And then some of it is the, you know, the Hispanic influence in this border area um, that is a little more liberal. So I think, and when I say liberal, I don't just, I'm not just talking about politics. I'm just talking about liberal perspective, artistic, um, not as much, you know, business bean counting, which you consider maybe a conservative point of view. So we do have, um, we've got a mix, you know, we're a rural area. So we've got conservative, traditional, this is the way things should be. And we, we also have this other influence uh, that is more liberal, um, uh, all-encompassing, accepting people how they are and embracing sort of new ideas about um, what society should be like. Which is interesting because, you know, back to when you and I started working together, um, you know, you were a general assignment reporter and I was a general assignment photojournalist. And we were covering a multitude of issues and, you know, related to Phoenix, being in Phoenix. Uh, a lot of people didn't realize that Phoenix, the DMA there, was truly to cover the state, not just the Phoenix metro area. And so you and I covered a lot of stories all over the state and beyond. You know, you and I traveled, you know, doing a lot of political reporting. Um, we'd hit the border. So we did a lot of different stuff, you know, in our times. But um, but being in the phys- the Phoenix proper, that's a very business center area. There's a large banking center there's a lot of business that comes in and out of that place. Uh, you know, you got Sky Harbor uh, International Airport that's really a mecca center, you know, of getting people in and to and from different major areas of the country. Um, what was it like leaving Tucson, working in Tucson as a reporter, you know, in a smaller quote unquote DMA or metro, going to the quote unquote big city to report and coming from that? I guess, rural area to big city way of doing things. What was that transition like, especially given the fact that you had all this experience growing up on the border? You know, it's a big difference living in a big city and coming from the country and especially in a city like Phoenix that is really grow is growing tremendously. 
and has grown. We get people from all over the, the country who move here every single day and they, you might think of Arizona as this place, but Arizona is really a couple of different places. And the, the city of Phoenix, Maricopa County, which we are in, is really kind of, we call it the state of Maricopa because we may be a border state, but Phoenix doesn't seem like, you know, a border state city. Uh, it's very cosmopolitan here. And so one of the biggest transitions that I had was going from somewhere where the border was sort of viewed as a way of life and a place that's right here to uh, a city that's, you know, only a hundred and maybe 150 miles from the border that might as well be on a different planet because this is not a border centric um, area, Maricopa County. The border is viewed largely here the way you would see it on the national news. Um, it's a problem. There's immigration. That's a problem. Um, we need a wall. Uh, the nuances that we've been talking about so far aren't readily apparent to most of the people who live here, even though we're pretty close to the border. And what was it like? How did you start transitioning the thought in the newsroom to start covering border-related issues? Because when you and I started working there, you know, 1999, um, we were going through a major election cycle with John McCain being on the primary ticket, you know, so we're hotbed in the middle of the presidential conversation, right? Um, there are a lot of things going on at that time that weren't so much focused on immigration, but you found a way to connect the Phoenix proper back to the border in a lot of your reporting. Talk about what it was like to start going down there and telling these stories for this largely Phoenix metro area. So when you work in a border community, you cover border issues as the news of the day. Um, it is This is happening here. It's happening in our backyard. I'm reporting on it. When you work in a city that's a little farther removed from the border physically and mentally even farther removed from the border, the challenge is to bring that border issue back home. How does it affect people here? To remind them that they're close to the border, to remind them that this thing that's happening down there has ultimately an impact here. So I had to switch mindsets into covering something that was just, I'm covering the news to covering something where I really have to give the viewers an excuse to care about what I am doing before I get to the story. Uh, and that was definitely a transition. It started with just pitching the stories to my bosses. I've got this idea. I want to do a story about the smuggling industry and how people hire smugglers. And the bosses would say, well, why do our viewers care about that? And say, One, it's interesting. If I was a television viewer and somebody was going to, you know, you saw a commercial on TV coming up tonight, we're going to show you how smugglers get hired in Mexico. I would think it was interesting, but that wasn't enough. We'd have to say, well, we have businesses here that are bringing people over. We have, you know, people that need jobs, people that need places filled uh, for employment. We also have a mindset here that smuggling is bad, which largely it is. Um, and and immigration is of concern to this market. So we're going to sort of peel back. We're going to open the door a little bit to, to a step in this thing that is in people's, you know, in the back of people's minds. 
And so you'd, you'd pitch the story that way to your boss and then you'd go down and shoot it. And you and I shot one of those how to hire a smuggler stories. Uh, very memorable yep. one. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> I remember that very vividly. My first big trip to Nogales and Bobby, stay right here. And if I'm not back in about two hours, call the concept. Yeah, I think I told you an hour and I think it was like three hours that I was back. That was, we had gone and I, do you want me to explain the premise of that story? So sure. I wanted Let's to do get it. a story about how to hire a smuggler. And, um, and I had done a version of it before, but the idea was we were going to take a hidden camera into Mexico and, and show the process of hiring a smuggler. And I would say I owned a restaurant in Phoenix and I had uh, some employees deported and I wanted to bring them back across. So I needed to, to hire somebody to bring them across. And, and obviously we would, you know, we'd show how the deal is made and then not actually go through with it because we didn't have employees. We also couldn't break the law to cross the border illegally. Uh, but our challenge was we were both general assignment, which means if we got an extra day to shoot something, it was like a miracle. And we had one day. So we right. had the three hour drive to get down there to cross the border. <laughs> so in the, in, in the, um, view of our deadline, I said, Bobby, okay, I want you to take your big camera, the news camera and get some flavor of the city, the border town, the guitars, the, the church, you know, people buying trinkets. And I'm going to go off with the hidden camera and I'm going to make this deal with a smuggler. Uh, and I'll meet you back here in an hour. And on paper, it sounded like a great idea. Uh, huge. I made a huge mistake in that whenever we do hidden camera, we never do it by ourselves, especially in Mexico. And, uh, and so that ended up holding me up because the smuggler that the cab driver I was with took me to spotted the hidden camera. And I was 15 miles south of the border at a truck stop by myself with a smuggler who says, what is that? And points right at the lens and <laughs> all in Spanish. And I was so lucky that he was more scared than I was because he ran one direction. I ran the other direction and got back into the cab and said, go, go, go. <laughs> so it had taken a lot longer to get that part of the story than I thought. And I'm back in my mind. I'm thinking, oh, what is Bobby doing? I, I think we had said, we'll meet on the steps to the church in an hour. And Bobby from South Carolina, who I, I don't know if he'd ever been to Mexico, doesn't speak Spanish, is sitting there going, I came down with this crazy reporter. He told me to be here in an hour, and it's been two hours. I didn't know he knew how to get back across the border. So I pull up, and he's sitting on the stairs kind of looking around and like, oh, this look of relief. <laughs> you stuck to the plan, though. You did your part right. <laughs> I did my part. We got, we got a great <laughs> story. And, and, and it, we did. To, like kind of go back to that how the border is sort of incidental. At the end of the day, we stopped in the U.S. at a house and interviewed a guy that I went to high school with who was about to be sentenced to prison for being a smuggler. And, um, yep. and he did a silhouette interview with us and, and explained all that. Yep. And this is just a guy I went to high school with. And this was his, his job. By the way, 
he's gotten out of prison. I see this guy all the time. He owns his own garbage business in Southern Arizona and went on the straight and narrow after that. But uh, yeah, he was our, our big get. That was a great story. Uh, and I, it was, yeah. and do you think that kind of opened the gates up for a lot of the other work you started doing with Z and everybody else? I mean, talk about the progression and the stories you started finding and convincing, you know, the higher ups that we could, we could tell. Yeah. And covering the border as an investigative reporter is kind of, um, you know, I, I show sort of a lot of what I show is the bad. And, and I like to tell people that, you know, accuse me of having a bent in my reporting. You know, I was covering bad things that happened on the border before there was even Fox News, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. Um, before immigration became a big news issue, we were showing how to hire a smuggler. We were showing how people go across and buy, you know, date rape drugs. Um, and, and what's interesting is my reporting showed all these bad things. Um, the reason I was able to do all this reporting is because I grew up on the border and I know there's so many, you know, good things. So I, while I have tried to, you know, while I still have to do my job of showing that, that there are, are some negative things, I mean, you know, it's not news when the plane lands. It's news when the plane right. doesn't land. When the so plane we crashes. show these negative things. Yep. I always try to include some normal, some positive in these stories um, to show that it's not, not all bad. And I think my progression as a reporter has been to more um, readily incorporate positive in with the reason I'm down there is to do this negative thing, you know, start it with a positive angle, show the negative, and then get back to the reality of what it is. And the reality of the border is, is as much positive as it is negative. I remember um, one of the stories we worked on was when border patrol decided to um, uh, have a group of people that were doing a search and rescue. And we would go out and we would showcase how um, the extreme measures that many of these border crossers are experiencing, you know, coming across in the heat, traveling by night, the coyotes, you know, getting them up on meth so they'll travel faster. And then when they they only have so many things of water and they're traveling in the heat of the day. They're, you know, they're, they're possibly having a stroke, you know, a lot of the issues with the environment. And so what the border patrol found was we needed, we got to do some humanitarian stuff before we can do the legal stuff. Um, that was a kind of an interesting way to start spinning and start thinking about the border more than just a legal piece, but it was a humanitarian piece as well. Um, what are some other of those humanitarian pieces that are you that you're finding? I'm sure you're finding the humanitarian, you're finding the legal, you're finding the transactional. Talk about the different stories that have really starting to resonate even more and more as you dive more into this institution of the border. Yeah, I really think it's important when I cover border stories um, to keep in the back of my mind that. These people that are coming across, for the most part, they're human beings, and and you need to add some humanity. And you also need to remind viewers who may not have any firsthand knowledge of what these people are like, of what they are really like, 
And it, um, you mentioned that story about the Border Patrol. It's the Boar Star team. It's their sort of search and rescue team. And you and I went down there. And, and I think that trip that you're talking about had a big impact on my reporting. Because if you remember, we were out in the middle of the desert. It was literally 120 degrees out. And we run into these people who had been abandoned by their smuggler. And the one guy had been out for like two days with no water. He was drinking his own urine and he's on the ground being treated right in front of us. And he died. You know, we, we watched a guy's life just slip away from him. And um, it was a powerful story, but it had a big impact on me. And, and I still refer to that when I'm doing a story on illegal border crossing and and some viewers may think that I'm sympathetic to the people or that I try to give more humanity to them and I always say look uh until you've seen somebody die right there in the desert because they're trying to get to a better life you really don't know what it's like out there and you know we do we cover the right. bad part of the border I I cover smugglers aggressively here I've run into them we've hired them um, to expose them. But we have to remember that, that most of these people, a vast majority, are, are regular people that just want a better life for themselves and their family. And so I, I think the, the evolution has been to try to incorporate in every story some sort of reminder that these are humans. And I just got back from the border. I spent three days down there doing stories on the migrant caravan that's going through the through Mexico to Tijuana. And, and I think I got a good balance because I got just as many complaints about being too sympathetic as I got from people who were um, incredibly pro-immigration, saying that uh, reports like mine show the negative side of immigration. If you can you make both sides angry, you think, I think you're doing your job right. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and exploration. Most importantly, the many intersections inside the world of storytelling. Intersection is powered by the Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Go to touchpoint.health for many other podcasts exploring digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, CIO and technology strategies, the challenges of the online physician, the power of the e-patient, and most importantly, the power of storytelling. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health.